welcome back to the Richard Emerson podcast with great people, interesting topics and good life. In this episode, we're going to talk with podcaster and student of linguistics, Adam Bishop, who recently started at college at the Truman State University and who has soon finished the second season of the Unlimited Opinions podcast, together with his dad, Mark Bishop, who's a philosopher, lawyer and a lover of the movie Roadhouse. We'll talk about Adam's podcast, Life at the University, the nature of languages, Tolkien's creation myth in Silmarillion, and how the ancient world is present and relevant also today. So thanks much for listening and for tuning in and enjoy the show. So we have uh, Adam Bishop from the Unlimited Opinions podcast and uh, welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to, to have a discussion. Mm. We already had a great episode about uh, Tolkien and and the Lord of the Rings on the on our other Ancient World podcast, which is hugely popular. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And then I thought now we can talk first just about your podcast. So it's been going now for two seasons. And just for people who haven't listened to it, uh, so in the first season, you covered an Anthony Kenny's A New History of Western Philosophy. And that was 41 episodes. And then in the second season, you're going through Jake Jackson's Myths and Legends. Uh, to single-handedly unearth the ancient wisdom and lost secrets of world mythologies, <laughs> which There's is a bit of sarcastic a... <laughs> uh, egotism. There, you know, we're, we're single-handedly, you know, bringing just... back this ancient wisdom. It's all us. <laughs> I'm just reading the blurb. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and that's at, uh, now 28 episodes. And then there's also a more than average amount of references to linguistics, sixties music, and J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. So, I just wanted to hear, like, what are your thoughts about the podcasting so far? And major learning points and discoveries. Yeah, so it's been a lot of fun so far. I've been doing this for about a year and a half. Uh, I actually co-host the podcast with my dad. Um, so uh, a lot of banter that goes back and forth. We, we kind of break from the actual topic itself a, a lot of the time, maybe too much of the time, just going on complete side tangents. But it's been a lot of fun. Um, we do this every week. We have episodes every week. Um, so it's just a lot of fun. It's a good way to just have conversations with my dad about, you know, meaningful things, sometimes very stupid things that aren't meaningful at all. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a definite learning curve. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode um, the other week and I, and I listened to myself and it's just like constant like and I um, we uh, uh, um, and just constant fillers the entire time. So it's definitely mm-hmm. helped me get a lot more comfortable just talking for extended periods of time. Um, and, I, and I think if you listen to the podcast, you hear that going forward, just us getting more comfortable with recording ourselves, just talking about anything that comes to mind. Uh, but it's been a whole lot of fun. And I think we've, we've both learned something throughout the process, just specifically about the topics that we're talking about. Uh, my dad got a, a bachelor's degree in philosophy when he, when he first went to school. He went on to become a lawyer. So he knew a lot more about the philosophy side of things than I did in the first season. I've spent a lot of my free time just as a hobby, you know, looking into mythologies and that sort of thing. So I kind of have the upper hand in that regard when we're talking about mythologies. But we've definitely kind of bounced off of each other, you know, shared theories about very big topics. So it's been a whole lot of fun just to kind of learn with him throughout this whole process. It's been, it's been a great time. Yeah, I mean, I'm loving it and listening. And the banter is fantastic. And it's, uh, (laughs) I mean, your dad always breaks it up, though, with all these references. And uh, I haven't seen the Roadhouse movie. Neither have uh, I, believe it or not. But I feel like I've seen it now. (laughs) (laughs) There's always a connection to some ancient uh, mythology or some philosophy. Um, So um, it it, uh, struck me how kind of the first season is much more kind of going through the, it's more like one narrative in one sense because it goes through the whole uh, 
history of philosophy. Um, so it was how much of that was new for you and kind of have you any thoughts, especially on this kind of the ancient and the medieval and the modern, like how, how different the nature of those three periods, for example? Yeah, so it was interesting uh, that, that you do kind of mention it's kind of one big progressing story because we did see a lot of that. And I knew bits and pieces of different philosophies, specifically with like the ancient stuff. I knew bits and pieces of like Socrates and Plato and that sort of thing. But once we got into like medieval and more modern philosophers, I knew basically nothing there. Uh, but you do kind of see, you know, it's all building on something that came before. Really, you mm -hmm. can't really pinpoint one specific starting point. Really, the earliest that we have record of is like Thales of Miletus, I think, is, is credited as one of the first, you know, ancient philosophers. Mm -hmm. uh, but you see just, you know, hundreds of years apart, you know, people will say, well, this person hundreds of years ago was incorrect. Or you'll see people say, well, no, this is actually the most correct thing we've ever had. We need to go back to this theory. And so it's kind of like just one big spinning wheel, you know, you see these great advancements and then you also see people say, well, we need to praise this ancient person. And a lot of times, you know, both are true. You can both move forward while also, you know, praising the past at the same time. You know, it's, it's kind of just a continuous wheel that moves towards the future. And that was just a, a very fascinating idea that kept coming up, you know, seeing where other people have borrowed from from people in the past and where they're, they're moving forward in the future. It was, it, was, it was a great learning experience there. Yeah, I, I remember um, you mentioned or kind of noticed that maybe it was your dad, but like that uh, philosophy tends to, in some ways it becomes more practical the closer you get to modern times. It's more like building practical systems while the ancient stuff is much more deeper fundamental ways of thinking in themselves. Mm -hmm. um, partly because we are, <laughs> most of the work that I'm doing is is the medieval and the ancient times. It's kind of Dante and backwards. It's kind of my, my favorite era. So, um, but I also remember you said something about uh, during that season about the philosophy of mythology, uh, which I really liked. And I remember then there was like your dad again, then there's so much of so many of the topics is kind of like you have different positions. That's kind of how I remember it. But like uh, he didn't quite uh, get what you meant with it, I think, if I remember correctly. You know, it's been it's been a long time since I've I've talked about that. But my general sort of philosophy of mythology, I think we brought this up a couple times in season two as well, is just like you can tell so much about like a society's culture and what they hold like dear to themselves by looking at the myths. If you look at the stories that people tell, you can tell what's important to them and see what they value in life and sort of the the, the, the things that they want to share with others and what they really think is important. Um, and I think that's one of the, the reasons that I'm personally so interested in mythology is that, you know, it gives us the window into the, the thoughts uh, of the people of that time, of that culture. It's a, it's a yeah. fascinating window to look into, into culture through stories. Yeah, I really like it because it's, um, it's part of the critique of more modernism and modernistic thinking is that you, you think more kind of in, in rational and logical ways and you, to some extent, you kind of start dismissing what's in stories mm -hmm. and and also the knowledge in stories and in metaphors and in allegory and that's something that's kind of has been in some ways lost at least we lost the balance maybe in some sense so uh, i really like the points you you made then earlier and what you said now that um, th there's sometimes much deeper more foundational things in the stories that it, also could be very hard to make explicit and kind of state in prose nonfiction language that's definitely so. true, especially when you look back at like the ancient philosophers, it's almost hard to draw a line where the mythology ends and like the philosophy starts because a lot of the, the ancient philosophy was just, well, what is the world made of? How do we understand the world around us? And a lot of it was kind of like 
Uh, a lot of the repeated ideas were like, well, every element kind of has its own natural place. You know, earth goes down, fire goes up, and sort of the celestial bodies go around in a circle and that sort of thing. That was a, that was a pretty popular belief. And it's like, well, how is that so much different from a mythology where we think that, you know, all of the earth was created to do some certain purpose and all of the celestial bodies move because of, of, of this reason? Um, so it's a lot of like when you when you break it down, you know, a lot of the, the fundamental philosophies that we have today, you know, because everything builds on itself, you know, was it kind of formed through this storytelling that became a more deeper way of looking at things through philosophy? You know, everything can kind of be related back to stories. I think that's one of the, the very first ways that, that we kind of learned about the world around us, the way we discovered how things work was through the stories that we told. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, um, sometimes it's described that when you go from the mythical age of Greece and then you go into the philosophical, the philosophical age, that that's kind of a progress but that's in some ways it's a little bit debatable because it's like they they're they're both um valuable and and they can kind of supplement each other so it's more mm. like the combination of the stories and the more kind of analytical philosophy for example like Absolutely. both parts are and what you can create together with them so um mm. i think it's becoming maybe one of these uh, hobby horses for this podcast would be to talk <laughs> about balance and to kind of elevate much of the ancient uh, and the myth mythological stuff as essential to create the balance that it's valuable in itself but it's also then uh, that's how you can can create with the combination of these two different worlds together absolutely um yeah so so how has then the second season been in that regard when you just kind of delve into the mythological traditions mm -hmm. so the second season uh, it, it kind of took a little bit of a different form you know the first season was more about like us sort of judging philosophies you know because we have the most expertise out of anyone on the planet uh you know we, we have the right to judge all these philosophies, but when we get into mythologies, you know, it's harder to say, you know, you can't say, well, this is wrong. You know, we can't find faults in stories. And so a lot of it is just telling the stories and then trying to find the symbolism in those stories. You know, what are they trying to say? What's the moral tale here? You know, mm -hmm. what's, what's sort of the aspect that's being represented? Kind of what I said earlier, you know, what's the window into society that we're looking at here? Um, so, so we do have a slightly different format, you know, we'll tell a story um, as it's written or as it's summarized in Jake Jackson's Myths and Legends and then we'll talk about it. Um, so it's been, it's been a very good time because a lot of these mythologies we knew nothing about, especially, you know, the Chinese, the Indian, um, you know, I, I know uh, quite a bit about, or I like to think that I know quite a bit about Greek and Norse mythology. Um, but when we get into like the, the, the more, you know, I guess foreign to us mythologies, you know, that was a, was a very interesting learning experience because we just had no idea what any of these stories were. We knew like bits and pieces, you know, certain names we knew from pop culture and that sort of thing, but getting to hear you know, the root story there, you know, what does this person mean? You know, what does this God, this deity stand for? What does he represent in society? Uh, has been a, has been a great, a, a great time to learn about that stuff. It's been very eye opening, I guess. Yeah. And um, so you just started with the Norse mythology. I heard today on the news episode, you also mentioned uh, today, well, I listened to today, um, Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and this uh, connection with the psychology and the mythology. That's also, a, um, it's kind of a classic the stage in getting into mythology i think to, to suddenly uh, get to learn these two thinkers and then mm -hmm. what they can add so do you have any um, any favorite insights from one of those two or both of them yeah so to be to be perfectly transparent here i haven't actually read any of carl Jung's works i've read joseph campbell's uh, the hero with a thousand faces mm -hmm. uh, but basically from what i understand about you know looking into these uh, these figures is that Carl Jung kind of posed this idea that we have certain archetypes that we represent in stories. You know, we have 
certain figures that are common throughout all of mythologies, um, and they all represent, you know, certain things. Uh, and we kind of have sort of some sort of psychological desire uh, to kind of put these archetypes, you know, into our stories. Uh, whereas Joseph Campbell kind of said that there is a, a, in most hero stories, at least in the hero with a thousand faces, you know, there's a certain progression that we do. You know, we kind of venture out into the unknown. We encounter certain trials. We encounter certain help from people. Um, and in the end, you know, we return home, we, de we defeat the big evil, but we're fundamentally changed. Um, and so we can never really return to life as it was. And that's just a, a very, you know, uh, a very common storyline that's, that's, you know, presented in dozens of different cultures um, in these hero stories. And so it's kind of almost a, a, an insight into how we, you know, perceive change almost, how we want to tell stories about change, how people change over time, you know, the struggles that they face. And you can apply it psychologically, you can apply it to your daily life almost. Um, I've seen other people posit, you know, uh, look at the challenges that you're facing. Look at how you change over time. Look at how, you know, your 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 life maybe a few months ago, a few weeks ago is different from your life now and how you can keep moving forward uh, through that. So two definitely very big thinkers in, in mythology that have, you know, massive implications for, for psychology and the way that we tell stories. Yeah. And I like the word, just the, or the idea of change as mm -hmm. one of those <laughs> aspects of reality that um, might be, you can say things about that through stories that could be hard to describe rationally with prose language. Um, this even goes into the um, into brain science and kind of the, the two brain parts, like the left hemisphere is not very good at understanding change. And it also has a certain annoyance in its <laughs> in, in, in the capability of understanding it. So it's, it's kind of mocks it sometimes, but, the, but for the right hemisphere, it's like, it's, uh, it's sort of the essence of, being in itself it's the, the whole school of philosophy about like change being the reality instead of kind of the snapshot being one of the what is real so that's um yeah that's, that's great to just hear that connection and the hero myth is um it has this enormous appeal to as you said kind of in it's, you see it in all all the traditions but it's also i think it lies deep in in um, close to every person as well if they just really try to search through their motives of doing something there is this little dream or motivation of doing something special that makes a difference and then also you have this part of going back like you go on an adventure and then going back to the, the kind of metaphorical village and sharing your learning so absolutely and the hero's journey has almost become, you know, in recent times, it's it's not seen so much of this sort of psychological, this mythological thing. Sometimes it's almost seen as like a creative writing device. Yeah. Uh, famously, Star Wars kind of follows the the hero's journey almost to a T uh, with how Luke Skywalker kind of progresses throughout his journey. That's how most people really know of the hero's journey, almost in like a plot device and how, you know, yeah. people change. But I mean, it's it's still, I mean, clearly very apparent in our in our minds that this is a story that we want to tell, the story of how our hero's journey out and, and our change it's, by their experiences. So true. It's uh, in many of these textbooks for screenwriting, for example, like mm -hmm. you, you split it up and then you present the characters and the, the mission and then you have the call to action. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting, like um, a, a few decades ago, there was like the movie was supposed to be like two hours and then almost exactly at 30 minutes, you have this call to action where the, mm -hmm. the hero, the main person is thrown into <laughs> this, this string of challenges and then um, and you can kind of time it on so many of the movies that, okay, now it's going to happen. But it's, it's for a good reason because it's the psychology of it and it's partly connected back to uh, the poetics of Aristotle even, kind of how he said technically the craft of writing a good drama has the same kind of building up and then you have the catharsis and all of that. So um, it's, um, it's directly human biology to some extent. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how much is left now, like season two? Like, so you started the Norse now and you've been through, well, is it the, the Celtic, the, the Greek, the Indian, the in so we've looked Native at American? African, Celtic, Greek, uh, Chinese, Native American. I think that's it. Let me, let me actually pull up my book to make sure I've got the, uh, the right, yeah, uh, items here. Uh, Indian as well. And so after Norse, I believe we just have Scottish mythology and that'll be the end of season two. So oh, only uh, a few more episodes left, I'd say about six or seven probably, um, in the season. Uh, so we're coming, uh, coming soon to a close here. Yeah. And that's, this is one of my questions on the, on my list there. What's, what's coming next in season three? That is an excellent question that I do not have an answer for. Um, you know, we, we've kind of floated the idea of maybe having some more interview type things, some more, um, you know, generic just sort of conversation. But uh, my dad has been adamant that uh, in season three, he will be choosing the book. So we'll see what All he right. comes up with. We'll probably still follow a book, throw in maybe some interviews. Uh, it'll be another book discussion on some some big topic. So we'll, we'll see where that takes us. I wonder if you might have a little um, Tolkien season <laughs> where you can enjoy. <laughs> if I can convince him to, to sit down and read a book by J.R.R. Tolkien, absolutely. But I think that is then a hard can, sell. <laughs> then he can finally re read Silmarillion and, <laughs> and The Hobbit and all of these books. Yeah. Um, and then you can probably do lots of interviews as well. If you wanna. Absolutely. Well, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, cool. So... Um, But um, it's just, it's great fun. I'm, I'm really enjoying listening to the podcast and uh, learning things. And some of it is kind of repetition, but it's kind of a new new take on things. So it's, uh, it's uh, and it's kind of stable. So every week is a new episode. So that's also kind of fun. Um, yeah. And also since the beginning, you have now changed your life situation a little bit. Mm -hmm. so, I have. So yeah. When we first started this podcast, I was uh, a senior in high school. Now I'm out at Truman State University. Uh, studying linguistics, so we've—it's come a long way. Uh, of course, you know we used to do this entirely in person every week uh, in my bedroom, actually. Uh, but now, you know, it has to be over Zoom. So there's a bit of a different vibe there. You know, it's harder to—it's harder for him to interrupt me. Uh, mm. is, is the big thing. That's—that's that's what he really regrets is not being able to jump in and stop me from talking and inserting his own ideas. My, my dad, that is. Um, but uh, you know, when I do come home, of course, we do get that in person. I feel like those episodes tend to be tend to be better, more natural. Um, but yeah, it's been a big change. Um, you know, it's been a lot of fun studying here at college. Um, you know, just looking into language, you know, it's been a huge passion of mine for a very long time and I'm finally getting to really dive into that. Um, it, it's, it's been, you know, just another great learning experience, you know, just having these, these classes to really dive into things. It's been, it's been a great time. Yeah. So for people who don't know what linguistics are uh, exactly, like if you just have a vague idea, like what, what, what's the focus of it and kind of how, have you chosen how to build thing like the components and mm -hmm. what's your plan here so, so you linguistics <laughs> you know the, the the general definition is the scientific study of language so a lot of it is you know looking at you know different parts of speech how they interact with each other you know across languages you know another big part of it is sociolinguistics you know how language affects society you can go into psycholinguistics you know how we actually develop language how we think about language um, but a lot of it is sort of you know documentation you know how these Uh, parts work with each other and you know you can go into you know cross-linguistically how languages differ um, it's just so many different opportunities for study within this one broad field just understanding the basics of language how we catalog it essentially and then looking outwards from there and and, and sort of studying uh, you know the, the impact of language on the world around us yeah so you're doing latin classes now 
So right? minoring in, in, in classical studies, uh, so uh, I've been taking Latin classes this year. I'll be taking Greek uh, next semester. So those have been a lot of fun, too, uh, to kind of dive into these ancient languages. You know, that's, that's one of the big passions of mine is, of course, uh, as you could probably tell from, from us focusing on ancient philosophy and Greek mm-hmm. mythology and all this other stuff, you know, going back to the ancients. And uh, that's been a, a, a very, very fun. I know people, you know, it's very common to sort of complain about having to take Latin classes and all oh, Latin so hard, but I really, mm-hmm. really enjoy it. Um, but I mean, I guess I can say that about learning any language. I, I just really learn uh, diving into other languages. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So uh, do you have any Hebrew or Chinese in the horizon as well? Or Probably not. Uh, <laughs> just for, for the sake of keeping me uh, graduating at a reasonable time, I would love to add in some more, more classes. But uh, to, to graduate within, you know, a decade, I guess, I'd have to cut down on the classes that I should be taking. Yeah, it, it just struck me that once you go out of the Indo-European family of languages, it's just a whole new <laughs> like mm-hmm. planet, galaxies. <laughs> like it's just, it's, it's just built up from the ground like very differently. Interestingly, you have, like in the whole of Europe is then Indo-European, uh, as well as then, for, just for listeners here, as well as uh, Persia and India has also come to the common root in this. But in Europe, you have Hungary and Finland, and they are not the Indo-European family. And I spent about a year at the border of Austria and Hungary. Wow. And uh, the Hungarian language is just, I tried to, it's just, you have nowhere to begin. Nothing mm-hmm. sounds or feels the same. So it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's a very interesting, <laughs> very interesting humbling experience. Actually, you mentioned that, um, because I'm taking a language in the mind class, and part of this class is diving into the psycholinguistics of, like, different languages. And the language I was assigned was, or, or the, the language that I chose was Finnish, um, mm. primarily for that reason that it's, you know, an accessible language, you know, within Europe, but it's not Indo-European, and sort of seeing uh, the differences there and how language sort of is, is conceived and thought of, you know, very, very differently from English in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the big ways is that, you know, in English, we have a certain word order. We have the subject, we have the verb, we have the object. Uh, Finnish has free word order. So you can like emphasize different words. You can put the object mm-hmm. first, then the verb, then the subject and that sort of thing. Yeah. So seeing how language uh, can be, you know, just completely turned on its head from what I'm used to and sort of looking at that in a different framework uh, has been just a great experience as well. Yeah. Oh, it's super interesting because you, you get this reminder that you might take it for granted that we have to do it. We have, maybe I've never thought about it, but it's like, mm-hmm. well, but you could do it in different ways. There's something about, I think, the whole Indo-European family that you you base the language around verbs and nouns, kind of mm-hmm. actions and things. But uh, and so that's kind of the core of it. But in other languages, that's not a... Then they might, for example, not have that distinction. So like a bicycle and two bicycles is kind of the same idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't separate yeah. it. So uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, you really can kind of get a, an elastic brain <laughs> or kind of gymnastics <laughs> or confusion <laughs> through kind of <laughs> going into these things. Uh, I've tried doing some Chinese and that's really a whole, that's kind of, it feels like you're rewiring your brain. It's kind of in computer language, it's like, it's not a different software. You kind of have to, the operating system has to be kind of, or even the hardware has to be rewired. Yeah, that's definitely. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Um, but I just think about language with um, etymology as well. So, like, since you or if you then like Latin, it's um, mm-hmm. once you go into etymology, then you see how much of it is really Greek <laughs> and, yeah. and some Latin. But uh, even the English language is like something like well, it's different estimates, and mm-hmm. maybe you know this better. But like, it's like 20, 30 percent mm-hmm. of the words. If you, especially if you take all 
kind of a, from a terminology from different fields of knowledge, for example, then it's like, it's just, it is, it's not only roots from Greeks, but it is Greek. Mm -hmm. Just like yeah. biography is, is a Greek word for life writing and mm -hmm. photography is light <laughs> writing. It's a, it's, all, it's a little bit of a metaphor, but like, well, you have mm -hmm. countless words like that. Yeah, I mean, English is kind of its own amalgamation because it just takes yeah. so much from other languages and it's almost unique in that regard, but just how much, how many borrowings we have, you know, a exactly. lot of the Latin doesn't come from Latin itself. It comes from French, which came from Latin, which, you know, came from, you know, all of these other things. And so we have just this, this amazing, you know, combination of different words here. It's hard to say, you know, how much is pure English, I guess you could say, how much is really Germanic, you know, the Germanic family of languages. We see that uh, a lot of connections to, to German, Norwegian, those sorts of things. But, um, a lot of it is, you know, just borrowed from completely other language families, yeah. which is it's fascinating. I think my impression is that, for example, German is more that they 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 translate the the words into into their own words, like they, they translate the concepts. But then, as you said, their English is 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 flexible in that sense that it can mm -hmm. just make them make them they're like they're our own <laughs> words. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so um, and just talking about words, and then since this is right before Easter, um, we had a little brief look into the etymology of Easter. So, uh, are you familiar with <laughs> with what it means? I'm somewhat familiar with it. I remember um, looking; at, it was the name of some pagan god at one point, Aostrom, I think it was. Um, exactly. but I don't remember the, the direct connection. Or like Estra, which is then mm -hmm. the goddess of uh, fertility and spring. Mm. So, but it's very interesting because. In Italian, you call it Pasqua, and that comes from the same Pasqua in Greek, which came from Pesach in Hebrew. So this actually has a Hebrew root. But then Pesach means passage, and that is uh, Moses crossing the Red Sea. So oh. that's the origin of the word uh, Pasqua in Italian. But then, that's fascinating. yeah. But then, and I learned today that in Welsh you actually have this word Pasch or something. You read P A S G. So they imported the idea of of uh, through Christianity and and then passage for the old biblical stories as the same with the newer biblical stories. Wow. Uh, while in English, you can like we, we kept the old pagan uh, celebration of of dawn and spring and a new life. Wow. So that's uh, that, that, I mean etymology is just a big web. You can pick one starting oh, yeah. point and go to fifteen other starting points, and it's just yeah. a, a massive you know interconnected. It's web. such a kind of generous field of study in a sense because you don't there's no threshold. You can just start with any word that comes through your like that you just notice one day, and you wonder what does that really mean, and then then you can just start. And then, I mean you learn some endings like prefixes and suffixes in Greek, and then you can more easily guess things. So, um, so but it's also just since I then looked up this Easter um, origin, then it made sense with uh, the bunny, Easter bunny and the eggs. Mm -hmm. I've never thought about that ever. Why? And it's just the ancient <laughs> ancient symbol, symbol of fertility. Like mm -hmm. the rabbit has always been this fertility uh, animal and same with the eggs. So that's, so um, yeah, the holidays we're going into is, it's pretty much all pagan, in, at least what you see in the streets and in the shops and kind of the, that part is just, just the, the old celebration of spring, which is kind of nice. Though. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And other new experiences from going to college and just 
<laughs> student I mean, life. Uh, one of the big things uh, that I've been doing recently, uh, we have a student research conference uh, every year here at Truman. So anybody's, you know, encouraged to sign up, submit an abstract. And I happened across, uh, I met somebody online who claimed to, to speak an undocumented language. Mm. And so, you know, my first thought, my, my linguist mind was, oh my God, that's incredible. I have to look into this. So I started talking to this dude and he, he agreed to, um, you know, provide me with just data. And I'll be presenting on that uh, actually next week, uh, not this Thursday, but the Thursday after. Um, so that's been just incredible. That's been one of my one of my dream jobs for a very long time, just to to document a language. And it just so happened that by complete chance, I happened upon this guy who 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 spoke an entirely different language that uh, he he claims that nobody uh, has ever documented before. Um, and so it's it's just been remarkable. And so like the the first question, of course, was like, well, is he lying? Is he making this up? Um, mm -hmm. He was worried about that himself. He was talking to me. He's like. I don't want to get you in any trouble. I don't want you to present this thing and then have like all these academics saying that you made this up and that sort of thing. And I, I kind of reassured him, like, once you get all this data, you know, it's it's so impossible to make up a language because you look at the words like we were just talking about that are so interconnected with other words, come from so many different places, all these parts of speech change so often that to really develop your own uh, made-up language would take a lifetime uh, to have it be any sort of accurate language. So I reassured him, you know, we're looking at this thing. It's, it's, just, it's this amazing language. It's, it's spoken in, uh, in Egypt. It's a Berber language. So it's an mm -hmm. Afroasiatic language, not Indo-European. Um, and, and so it's, it's near this other oasis um, in Egypt. You know, these Berber languages used to cover all of North Africa. They were wiped out or, or kind of assimilated a long time ago, but they exist in pockets. And so you have the, the Siwa oasis, which, has, which uh, about 20,000 people there speak a Berber language. And you have northeast of that, the, the Kara oasis, where maybe 20 people, 25 people by, by the native speakers' estimates ha, uh, still speak this language uh, mm -hmm. that we've called Karan Berber. So that's been so much fun to be able to document this language uh, and just, you know, find this data that, you know, presumably nobody outside of the native speakers have ever looked at. Uh, yeah. It's been so much fun and so eye-opening to, to be able to dive into that. I've heard somewhere that um, the natural capacity for languages, especially like if you go back like tens of thousands of years and kind of tribes like in, in Africa, especially like they, they had like 10, 12 languages mm -hmm. because like, and just neighboring villages could be completely different. So um, um, just like it's natural, especially for, for children to be able mm -hmm. to have all these different language worlds. Um, yeah. There's also like, we talk about undocumented languages. Um, it's, it's a different case, but I know that uh, I have a friend in, in uh, Torino in, in Italy. Mm -hmm. And then she spoke once for me uh, this uh, Piemont, uh, mm. uh, or it was kind of Pro Provence Piemont mixture, huh. which I've never heard before. But this is kind of, it's just a, well, it sounds like a, a blend of French and Italian. It was super beautiful. Uh, wow. But there was something about many locals, like most people who knew that language are kind of dying out now, and the young people aren't learning it. So it's just an example of how languages go extinct and then. And or they certainly they're not official anymore, and then they kind of just gradually. Um, I'm also I'm working with a, a Welsh guy, and then he talks about that's kind of the opposite that Welsh is kind of growing again as a language, and then more people are interested in studying it, and the older population are super happy <laughs> that you know, the position of Welsh is going going up again, so like the awareness of it, knowledge of it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, but the languages, uh, I think this. There's a person who wrote the made the languages in the Game of Thrones that that uh, Khaleesi is speaking. Mm -hmm. One of them, I guess, is speaking, uh, which sounds super <laughs> super cool. 
uh, I think that's the person who, who who's a bit like Tolkien in that sense that he just create he creates languages for mm-hmm. as a hobby. But yeah, I guess George R. R. Martin, you know, I, I've never read Game of Thrones, the series myself, but I know, you know, of him and his language creation, um, yeah. very, very similar to Tolkien, um, wherein, you know, making these invented languages, um, really just trying to, because usually what ends up happening with authors, they, they don't end up being realistic because they want to give them a certain sound. They want them to, to have this certain aspect. And of course, you know, languages don't develop that way. They don't develop to exactly. achieve this certain sound. They don't develop to achieve these certain features. They just develop because they do, because that's how people speak it. And over time, it just changes. Um, and so, I mean, all of these invented languages are super beautiful and super cool and amazing to look at. Um, yeah. But you can definitely see sort of the, the difference between, you know, actual real world languages and, you know, fictional languages. And the fictional languages can get pretty close if you spend decades and decades, you know, developing them and writing about them and making them yeah. very, very realistic. But uh, but at the end of the day, you know, there is a, a distinct difference there. I mean, it's a, languages really can be a work of art. I mean, especially with George R. R. Martin, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, to, yeah. to, to develop these words and these things that you see. It's just beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Artwork. Um, and you also have like... Again, Dante, and like, he creates the Italian language more or less, just taking kind of the vernacular of the day and then, and then making it super beautiful in terms, like in terms of aesthetics, especially. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that became, well, then a few centuries later, defined as the the national language, yeah, just taking absolutely. the Tuscan language. That's um, so, and that's another feature of languages, I guess. Like you have different purposes. So the Italian is made for aesthetics, kind of almost primarily. Other languages are more made for function or for, mm-hmm. for kind of uh, a structure, consistent structure, for example, which mm-hmm. makes them maybe more efficient. But then also, it, there's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. Kind of, there's so many choices in making languages. Mm-hmm. That's what tends to happen because it's it's children who really drive language change um, mm. because it's really not the adults because you know they're just going based on what they learned as children. Um, and so what you see when languages do change when they develop. Um, you know, children tend to oversimplify rules. Um, like uh, in English, you know, um, for example, I'm trying to think of a, um, like, like to, to run, you know, he runs, she runs, but he did not ran, uh, he did not run, he ran, you know, exactly. in the past tense. And so, you know, maybe given enough time, you would see children, you know, changing that to, to just be he ran or he run. It's, it's hard for me to, hard for me to yeah. even you know, say it incorrectly because it's what I'm so used to. But that's what I, you I, see in languages is that it's children, you know, oversimplifying these rules. And that's how the languages change uh, a lot of the time, at least. Yeah. I wonder if, if uh, um, Gollum is, is using, like when he talks about hobbitses, for example, like you have houses or you mm-hmm. have like this, that he's, if there's a consistency in his language that is just kind of a more childlike, you apply the wrong, <laughs> the wrong rules. Like you, you just drop all the exceptions. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, like in the, the pop culture sort of stuff, you know, not uh, Lord of the Rings, but uh, Star Wars, actually, the reason that, you know, the, in, the in-universe reason why Yoda talks the way he does with like sort of the reversed order yeah. is because, you know, he's like 800 years older or something by the yeah. time that Star Wars happens. And when he was a, a child, you know, that's how people spoke the language. It, it was that reverse order. And that's just how he's spoken it from then on do you know is there a is there a, a consistent word structure to yoda speak i had this discussion this week if you just put the verb at the end or if you the verb Not, at the I, end I, I don't know enough about it off the top of my head i think there is some sort of consistency there but um you know i'm not entirely sure not too mm. well versed in uh, in in yoda's language but, yoda's uh, manner of speaking yeah and again like the point you made earlier it's it's easy to do it when you write a, a script for a movie and you invent a new language, <laughs> you're, not, you're not using it in real time. So yeah. 
and easier to see, look at the sentences. Um, I just want to mention one last language, and since we mentioned Tolkien and also the Welsh, uh, because I've been, I've learned so much about the Welsh language the last year and also how Tolkien based it on. We, we touched upon this in the previous episode as mm. well, but it's just fun for listeners, I think, to know that the Elvish languages are very much based upon the Welsh and especially the phonology is like the mm. way the sound is, is uh, basically the same. And this one, the person I work with, a friend of mine, he he rewatched the movies after learning that, that Tolkien was so uh, fond of the, <laughs> of the mm-hmm. Welsh language. And he said that listening to the Welsh is like, it sounds like he should understand them, but he can't understand the words, but it sounds completely familiar. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Tolkien's, you know, two major languages, uh, Sindarin and Quenya, uh, both Elvish languages, you know, they, he, he fell in love with a couple different languages throughout his life. I, I think I talked about this last time, but Welsh was one of them. Yeah. So he took a lot of the sounds from Welsh and, and uh, used those in Sindarin. And he also really, really loved Finnish too. And so he used a lot of Finnish uh, sounds to kind of develop the sound of Quenya, his other Elvish language. So definitely yeah. interesting to see the, the real world connections there. Exactly. And... Um, on the point of Tolkien, I thought like um, I had a surprise bonus topic here. Um, so we have this kind of long-standing plan about <laughs> looking at the Silmarillion. I haven't gotten to to read it yet, but I have read the beginning and I, I read the creation myth. Mm-hmm. So um, also for people who haven't uh, haven't read the Silmarillion, um, yeah, I thought we could talk a little bit about uh, Anulindale and. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about your thoughts about this, also because this is very much in in like the topic of your second season with mythology. So it's a, it's a full creation mythology. So just with your enthusiasm of Tolkien, I would love to hear <laughs> what you think of it. Yeah, so there's just a million million avenues <laughs> I can go down here, but uh, the Silmarillion is really one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most mythological fictional things ever written. Uh, Because really the whole of the Silmarillion spans thousands of years, dozens of different characters, uh, different sagas really kind of uh, interacting with each other. And you really, really see that in the the Ainulindale, weird, weird Elvish pronunciation there. Um, But, you know, that that is the creation myth where all the the gods are created essentially by Eru Levatar, the the one high god, and they all join in a song uh, to create the entire world. Uh, but then this this evil god Melkor, he recruits a bunch of the other uh, gods, these deities, onto his side, and they introduce discord and, and uh, disharmony and that sort of thing to create evil and counteract the the good plan and that sort of thing. Um, and it's just one of the most beautiful creation stories you know ever written, real or fictional, but to have all of these deities um, just join together in song to create the world. Um, and I think that really goes into into Tolkien's sort of frame of mind when, you know, creating things. You know, like I said earlier, he he, he really viewed language as an art form. Mm-hmm. And so this is, I think, one of the, the fullest manifestations of that in that, you know, the language, the words being sung here are art and they're an act of creation. And that creating this whole universe through, through words and through song uh, conducted in this great chorus is just one of the most beautiful, you know, uh, images that you can picture of, of mm. all these gods coming together to to create everything. Of course, you do have the the evil gods there, but you know it's 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 a beautiful yeah. creation story. There are very like a lot of very interesting things with that story. I mean, it's it's fifteen pages long, or so it's kind of a short story, but it's um it's sort of biblical in its genre almost. Mm-hmm. I would say um, it's also fun to talk about etymology. Like Iluvatar is then father of all, I guess. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the Vatars, they t- took that one. Um, but how well it 
or how much he is drawing from from a Catholic theology, <laughs> and then also creating a new mythology. Uh, it's kind of stunning, like all these um, these uh, angelical beings, kind of that he creates that have, are different aspects of the the one the one God, which mm -hmm. is very, but it's exactly kind of it's a Dionysius and it's a, it's classic um, classic theology for for also in kind of this neo-platonist uh, tradition yeah yeah the, the impact of sort of christianity on tolkien's writings is almost a bit of an iffy subject um because a lot of people tend to overstretch that and they're like well all of the lord of the rings all the silmarillion it's just an analogy for christianity for catholicism and that's mm. really not what tolkien was going for at all he he really wanted to stray away from from analogy what he really started off as when he was writing these things he wanted to create a mythology for England itself, uh, because England didn't really have its own mythology necessarily. Um, but he definitely included Christian morals. He did not include Christian theology per se, in that, you know, you know, Eru Levatar is, is, you know, a representation of Yahweh, essentially, the, the, the Christian Abrahamic God, you know, but he is one God. And you have all of these, these morality tales that essentially reflect the morality of Christianity, but they are not necessarily analogies for Christianity, if that makes sense. I know that's a... Mm -hmm. It's, it's an interesting topic to go down because you definitely don't want to overstretch that and say, well, it's all just Catholicism. That's all he was talking about because there's, there's so much more to it than that. Yeah. And I mean, he himself is very clear on this that he, well, I think he said the Lord of the Rings, he said it was unconsciously uh, some Catholic elements in the mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings, but then consciously he removed all references. Mm -hmm. And he also, I think he says something about like that he doesn't like allegory in that sense. He doesn't mm -hmm. want it to be like, so this is, uh, in at least in what he's saying, he's very intent on not creating mm -hmm. this as a as kind of a <laughs> a way for people to kind of go into Catholicism. Mm -hmm. He wants this to be independent stories. And as you said, there, the, um, to, there was something about he thought there were uh, the English language uh, was missing some of these foundational mm -hmm. stories that you found that you find in other. Yeah, I mean, this, so. this kind of goes back to, to what we were talking about earlier and how, you know, language and, and writing, you know, coexist, because that was one of the big things that he thought, you know, he wrote this whole big speech uh, at one of the universities he taught about, about how language and literature are, you know, inextricably tied together. You can't have one without the other, essentially, you know, they both shape each other in different ways. Kind of what I was saying about, you know, sociolinguistics, how society shapes language and vice versa. Um, and so to really give uh, the language, you know, any sort of meaning, you have to have stories written in the language because that's mm. what really drives language change. And that's what he really set out to do when he first wrote the Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings and everything. He didn't want to necessarily write stories, first of all. He just wanted to create languages, but he recognized that, you know, for language to be legit, it has to have stories that are written in it. He, he really worked backwards for, for, yeah. for most authors and most fantasy authors. You know, most of them are like, well, I have this fictional world. There has to be a fictional language. Tolkien thought the opposite. I have this fictional language. There has to be a fictional world to support the language because languages don't exist in vacuums. They, they, yeah. they are, you know, impacted by so many other factors. And that's really uh, the, the, the seed of what became his whole, you know, fictional universe. You could, in some sense, it's like he's starting deeper, though. Like he, mm -hmm. like, to create the language is to to create a whole mental world at a deeper level before mm -hmm. you create a philosophy and <laughs> and a mythology. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's just it's massively impressive. Yeah. It it's not known well enough in some sense. I think that how 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 big Tolkien is as a kind of a philosopher and a language um, mm -hmm. or creator or or uh, yeah, just like a 
I wouldn't say intellectual, but like there's there's such a depth to his work and his whole life endeavor mm -hmm. that. Um, but I mean, he is often uh, rewarded as the or uh, yeah, in this kind of the newspaper um, uh, awards or when they, when they mm -hmm. have these big polls that he he keeps coming up as one of the biggest or maybe the biggest English writer in literature. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, deservedly so. I mean, he's a fantastic author. And really, this discussion kind of goes back to what we were talking about the, at the beginning of this recording, you know, um, you know, where the difference between mythology and philosophy is, you know, how they build on each other. And in the, at the, at the, excuse me, at the end of the day, it all goes yeah. back to language because, you know, language yeah. and stories are, are intertwined and they develop off of each other. And that turns into mythology and into philosophy and all sort of thinking that we you know, have to this day, it all builds on something that came before. And I think one of the real roots that we can get at is language itself. That is one of the, the foundational roots for everything that we think and that we know and yeah. all stems from just having language. Yeah, it's a great point. And he also has, he has the balance also. He mm -hmm. really has much of the, the, the logic thinking, kind of the more analytical philosophy thinking baked mm -hmm into balanced into the stories um that might be also kind of why he likes welsh so much because like the, there's there's things in the celtic that is more balanced um with with kind of the mysterious sometimes sort of kind of the is this uh ideas about like the between the irish with the celtic like the the irish soul and that kind of uh, mm -hmm. that dimension of of the people there and the tradition they have um, but um, there's a couple of things with the creation myth of Tolkien. I think it's really interesting to just note here that um, how he talks about evil is different from most traditions I've ever mm -hmm. encountered. Uh, because what he says, like you alluded to here in terms of like, well, the music and then how Melkor as this Lucifer character, who is the, the brightest, the most beautiful uh, of all the the these angelical beings these Ainurs, he then is taken by hubris by pride <laughs> as as in all mythologies and wants to be the he wants to be in charge himself and but the discord that he's sowing is just being incorporated into the rest and the message from Iluvatar is that no matter what you do and you try to create like damage discord disharmony evil i will just use you as a tool for creating something beautiful mm -hmm. and um it's a way of treating this topic about the nature of evil in a very different way than it's um it's quite ambitious what he's doing there in terms of <laughs> going away from the whole whole biblical tradition mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think it's you know a beautiful concept and that evil is not always ugly um for starters sort of you know melkor is not this ugly figure to begin with he's he's the most beautiful like you said and the most powerful um and sort of you know that's sort of a corrupting force to him you know he he becomes you know evil this very powerful being because of the power that he had but then again you know once the evil has been sown and all this destruction has been created good will still come again uh, i think we might have talked about this actually uh, the last time you had me on uh, the, the two different types of evil that tolkien saw you know sort of the ordered evil and the chaotic evil you mm. know this chaotic evil is doomed to fail good will eventually overcome it but the ordered evil you know has a better chance of succeeding but at the end of the day you know evil is going to undo itself you know it's it's going to lead to its own destruction evil is not sustainable uh, but good is good will always come to replace the evil I mean, that's just a beautiful frame of mind to have, you know, no matter how bad things can get, you know, there's still light at the end of the tunnel. You can still bring it back to a good place. Yeah. And it's a way of uniting, which is 
again, a bit of this Ian McGilchrist framework of thinking that the left hemisphere tends to divide things while the right hemisphere unites it. And what, what Tolkien is doing is that he's unite, he's, um, you can't put anything out of the big picture. Like, so, so you have to then incorporate it in some way. And then the way he does it with this music and then the, this disharmony that's just being drowned out, I think it's like the two or three <laughs> rounds mm -hmm. of it. And then yeah. finally just kind of completely drowned out and then, mm -hmm. then uh, it's united into it again. So mm -hmm. absolutely, yeah. You mentioned something about this to in the last episode, I think about like the evil coming back mm -hmm. or so. And it reminded me of um, also I'm coming, coming with all my useful references here <laughs> with the Dante and, and McGilchrist, but that, <laughs> that um, in the Garden of Eden, when Dante goes through this, the like allegorically, he goes through the history of the church There's mm -hmm. in seven scenes from kind of the, the early Roman Empire of his day. There's a scene and the church is this chariot and, and like, and then one of those seven steps is uh, a tail that just smashes up from the ground and then kind of crushes a lot of the, the chariot. And then the tail just kind of and goes down into the ground again. And it's seen as a kind of a mystery what Dante really meant by this. But usually it's seen as something like you, want, you can't get rid of it. Mm -hmm. the, 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 will, the snake will always be there, the serpent. Mm -hmm. Like it comes there and then it's more like how, how we, you relate to it or how it's kind of managed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've definitely talked about that before on the podcast, just sort of the, the general cyclical nature of, of mythologies. I know, especially in the Indian mythology, we talked about the very definite clear cut cycles of, you know, rebirth and death and life again, all sort of flowing in a cycle. Um, and when we're getting into the Norse mythology, we haven't really discussed this in detail too much yet. Uh, but when you get to Ragnarok, you know, the death of the gods, all of the gods are destroyed, uh, except for a couple of them. And then one of the, the gods, Baldur's reborn and sort of life starts anew on a whole new earth, you know, out of this destruction comes something new, uh, similar to our thoughts uh, when we were talking about Shiva in the Indian mythology, sort of the, the idea of he, he is sort of the destructive force, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, because you need destruction to enact change. Sort of, again, like we were talking about, bringing it another full circle uh, mm. with the hero's journey. You know, yeah. at the end of this great journey, you're forever changed. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you've undergone grievous, you know, terrible change sometimes. But now you are a different person. You're where you need to be and you can continue moving forward in life. And I think that's just a very common theme in, in a lot of these these stories that we've seen. Yeah. It also reminds me of a, of a saying more philosophical saying in the Chinese about like chaos and order that uh, out of the order grows a chaos and then out of the chaos grows an order. And that's, that's how <laughs> that's one of the cycles. And it's interesting when you, when you kind of read or discover these traditions that are four, five, 6,000 years old, because mm -hmm. they have a different amount of experience mm -hmm. in their history and they see different patterns and they, they, they have this kind of long-term wisdom sometimes that is um, kind of breathtaking at times when you just understand that that's actually capturing things that you <laughs> that you can see happening again and again. I mean, it's, it's, it's surprisingly applicable to your own daily life. You can take the stories told 4,000 yeah. years ago and, and they still fit. They still work. You can, you can look at those morals, look at the, the things that these ancient, ancient people are saying um, and, and, and they still apply. It's just part of human nature, I guess, at some point, you know, these are yeah. things that we all face and we've just represented them in different ways. And we can see that come up again and again through mythology and the stories that we tell. That's a really great point. And that once you discover that, it becomes kind of obvious after a while. Mm -hmm. But then for some people, it's, it's a new discovery that 
the point of so much of the ancient wisdom is that it is timeless. Mm-hmm. Like the, the claim through it is that some things changed, but some things are, some dynamics are eternal. They happen again and again. And those are often expressed in, in the stories, in mystical stories, but, but they should be applicable to your own daily life or what you, and what you see. That's the whole point of them. And then you, then you might also discover that these, this kind of, it's not a reality, but this realm of spiritual wisdom, like it is, it is present, it's timeless, but it's also present all the time. So yeah. then, and then you can just gradually expand your knowledge of it. And, and it's just, enriches your life so it's um mm-hmm. i think that's that's uh, one thing that could be a great discovery for for uh, for some people that loving the old stuff isn't isn't kind of escapism or kind of dreaming yourself away into this romantic past part of it is that it's it helps you today right now so. i think that's definitely an issue in, in our in our current life um not to get too much into current events but i feel like there is a general vibe of because it's old, we don't need it anymore. We can do away with that. You know, it's, it's not timely. We just yeah. need to keep moving forward. But I think, you know, one of the, the themes that we've said throughout this entire uh, recording here is that you need the old stuff to build up of, uh, build yeah. up off of. And yeah. you can take some of the things from the old and make it into the new, but you cannot just completely cast out the old because it is old. And we need to find those, those great wisdoms, those great ideas that were in the past and use them in our lives now while also building up to new and maybe better ideas. But, you know, that's not to discredit the old ideas for having some of the best ideas, you know. Exactly. Look in the past and see how we can apply it to our future, I think, is, is what and, we should be doing. And you also can't discard much of it because it's actually true. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> you, can, you can pretend it's not there, but it's still there. The, the myth of Icarus, I always mention that one, is <laughs> it will always be true. There will always be limitations to your your competence, your your abilities, and if you go beyond the, the, those, there will be some consequences of mm-hmm. it. That will never change. You can go a million years into the future. It's, it's uh, and people will do the same mistakes mm-hmm. <laughs> when that times come, and then they will discover the old stories, and then they will learn, and then then you get this. Um, yeah, maybe that can be one of the closing points. Is that if you look at really old traditions, they have, I think. Like for mo- at least if you look at the Hebrew or the Chinese, for example, that they they tend to land on this constant blending of the old and the new, mm-hmm. and that's the stable uh, kind of. It's, it's almost like a. It's not a machinery, but it's this kind of dynamic that mm-hmm. keeps going. Uh, so it's you never go totally back to the old. You never go totally into the new. Just creating that balance is is what what their long experience will tell them. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, great. So, uh, any last words before we wrap it up here? Um, I think yeah, after thoughts, I think I've talked for long enough. I've shared enough <laughs> ideas here. <laughs> it was great. I really love your your language passion and the kind of the love for the linguistics because it's um it's yeah I'm I'm learning new points. It's kind of mind opening to just uh, be more conscious and aware of the role of language in your own head when you're thinking <laughs> and when you're talking and how it affects how you see the world and how much you can change it through Absolutely. learning other languages and, and learning more about your own language as well. So that's, um, mm-hmm. that is really, really great. Um, yeah. Well, but um, hope uh, I'm looking forward to the third season. Uh, hope you'll find a great concept or a great book. <laughs> and, Once we uh, figure out what we're doing there, I'm sure it'll be fantastic. We just, <laughs> we just need a plan first. Yeah. But, uh, we'll yeah, I'm sure it will be in great. In the near future. And I hope you can both keep going for a long time. It's, it's great fun to listen to. Yeah, so, um, 
Uh, with that, thanks again to Adam Bishop from Unlimited Opinions. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening. And see you again in another episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>